0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Coming to you live from the road, aka parked in a driveway in Los Angeles. (laughs) Van life. It's wild. Um, No, but it was kind of wild getting here. We're here for a week, getting some things done, seeing some friends. um, And actually, we're here a bit early. It was very, very hot in the desert in Utah. Um, where we were driving through to get here. And instead of just sitting in the desert melting, we decided to get to LA a bit earlier to get more done quickly so that we can hit the road again. Um, Before I get into talking about this episode, I did want to mention that myself and Chris Ryan are going to be hosting podcast meetups now that things are a bit better COVID-wise I'm personally extremely excited to get back to meetups and to, to meet up with all of you. Um, always a little bit of a difficult process because we're on the road and everything is unpredictable and we just sort of follow our noses. So trying to schedule a time and a place <laughs> that we're going to be proves to be very difficult. And often the meetups, um, if you've participated in them before, you know, they, they're normally not a- announced until a couple of days before. Um, but we do have a list of places that we're thinking we would like to do meetups or at least the area where we'd like to do them. If you go to my website, anyakots.com slash podcast meetups, I believe that's what it is. If that doesn't work, um, It's just a drop down from the about me and on Chris's website, chrisryanphd.com slash vanthropology is where you will find those dates. And basically, we need your help this time. Normally, we've done meetups at bars or restaurants, but we are thinking that in especially larger places that that's going to be difficult to, like, gather a big group of an unpredictable number of people in an enclosed space. Um, so instead, we were thinking, well, maybe we could do some of these outside. So maybe, like, at a park somewhere or at a beach or if someone has land that they'd like to donate for a meetup where we can have a fire and chill and people can BYOB or whatever else, um, please let us know. Uh, Send us an email at uh, 81131podcast at gmail.com and just put where you are, where you think we should host a meetup, either if you own land um, or if you know a place like a restaurant or a bar that has some open space that you think we could safely gather a group of people at you know, and not have to... Be separated. I don't I don't really know what's going on in cities nowadays, to be honest. I feel like being back in LA feels like I'm in like some galactic federation or something, like in the Target, trying to figure out the self-checkout. I've just been living out in rural Colorado for so long that all of this, I mean, this is always civilization has always felt strange to me, but it feels especially strange. Uh so all that said, like I'm still seeing people wearing masks riding bicycles in Los Angeles, which is extremely confusing to me. Me and always has been so i'm not really sure what the regulations are anymore but if you do know a place wherever you live that has like an open outdoor space of open barbecue or something like that and you think it would be a good place to meet up and it's listed on our list of meetup stops or somewhere nearby again please let us know 81131podcast at gmail.com is the best most organized way to contact us about that. Um, Yeah. So on the way here, we stopped uh, at our friend Tao Roosbelies in Joshua Tree. And uh, Tao now has a podcast uh, called Being in the World, which I highly recommend. Um, He co-hosts it sometimes with his friend Patrick and uh, sometimes alone when Patrick's not around. And it's really amazing. And Tao is really amazing. And uh, he sort of impromptu asked if... We could record a podcast together, uh, sort of me on his podcast slash co-releasing it. And I was really excited about that because I've always wanted to have Tao on my podcast, but to be perfectly honest, I never felt like smart enough or worthy enough (laughs) to have Tao on the podcast. Um, Tao is someone who has inspired me a great deal over the past few years, especially. And, um, honestly, I had so much more to talk to him about that we didn't talk about on this conversation. So hopefully we can do that again. And, um, but yeah, I'm excited to bring you this conversation as is, and I definitely recommend checking out all of Tao's, um, films and his podcast and his life. (laughs) Just follow him on Instagram. I swear, I think it's so important that like everyone finds themselves a Tao, uh, someone who's living a life that really inspires you and shows you what the outer limits are of possibility when it comes to living an authentic fulfilling, aligned life. Um, r- truly, just finding one person, I can think back, and I've reached out to these people actually in the past, like people in my past who I was just so impressed by their bravery and courage to step out of the bounds of conventionality and live in a way that made them happy. Um, those people are so important. I've been having a lot of conversations recently about like how much of our issue in finding an aligned relationship or an aligned life or a job or a career, like how much of our inability sometimes to figure that out is just as a result of not having good examples. I definitely know that was the case for me, that really all I needed was a few people, like Tao, for example, to show me that the life that I wanted to lead was actually possible and that other people were doing it. And if I decided to live that life, that I'd be surrounded by other like-minded humans. And that, of course, is very important. Um, so, yeah, find people that inspire you and then learn from them and See them not as some ideal that you can't accomplish or something to be jealous of or, oh, if only I could live that life. But I truly encourage you to expand the breadth of possibility and find people who are really doing that, um, creating that expansive place, as Tao says in our conversation, sort of along the edges of possibility Um, and use that as inspiration and as courage to launch yourself into whatever life that you'd like to have. Okay, what else is there to talk about? Um, We have just begun our June and July book club. Normally our book clubs are only a month long, but we have chosen to read Women Who Run With the Wolves this time around, and that is a very dense book, Um, and I wanted to give it the time and the attention that it deserved. So if you are a part of our Patreon community, and you can find more information about that by going to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz, Um, And if you are part of the Patreon community at the Renegade level or up, you get to participate in our book club, among many other things. Um, But we're reading that book uh, June and July, and then we're going to meet via Zoom. I normally do two Zoom calls to accommodate different time zones and as many people as possible. And also just to keep the conversations a bit smaller, it's uh, a little bit nicer to have a more intimate group. So if you are interested in reading that book with us and talking about it with people who are like you, curious and smart and fucking weird, um, join our book club, uh, patreon.com slash Anya In addition, um, this month the, we do patron-led workshops as well. So my patron and friend Laura is going to be teaching um a workshop on Reiki which is happening this Sunday. Uh it will be recorded and when you sign up as a patron again at the Renegade level or higher, you get access to not only future workshops that are hosted by um fellow patrons and also former guests of the show, um but you get access to all of the previously recorded workshops as well. So that includes a 3-hour astrology workshop I did. There's like two other different astrology ones um Let's see. Oh, how to become a more confident creator and a foraging workshop so far. And there are many more to come. Um, So much stuff on Patreon and I feel like exhausted by talking about it (laughs) all the time. Um, But if you are interested in meeting... Other listeners, and, uh, and that's both virtually and in person, um, plus you are interested in discussing podcast episodes and other topics on our Discord server, joining the book club, participating in the workshops. I also offer custom playlists for patrons only. All of that is available Online Patreon.com slash Anya Katz, And basically, I don't want to have um, advertisers on this podcast ever, but I would like this podcast to be my quote-unquote job, at least to some extent. And in order for me to do that, I need your financial support. Um, because they need to eat and live and do all things that require money in this capitalist society. (laughs) Um, So if you have a few extra bucks to spare per month, um, your money goes toward helping me continue to do this. But also in exchange, I try to offer as many different types of perks as possible and and most of them are constructed around my intention and desire to help all of you meet each other so whatever i offer is always has a community aspect to it whether that's the discord server that we participate in or the book clubs these conversations we have um it's really important for me to help you all see each other face to face even though, even if that's over the over a screen um so if that's something you're interested in if you're feeling lonely. Um, if you want to just run things by other people, it makes me so happy to see that happening so frequently, even when I'm not present, um, that this community is sort of cropping up all around me. All I did was open the door and all of you guys walked inside. So thank you, um, whether or not you're a patron, thank you for being here. Thank you for spending this time with me. Um, I'm going to play you in today with a song. It's actually a uh, Sinead Sinead O'Connor cover, um, Uh, a cover by Betty LeVette and it's called I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got and yeah I think actually Chris Ryan was playing this the other day and I heard it and I was like what is that I need that song Uh, And I thought it worked perfectly for today's conversation, which will make more sense once you listen to it. And, uh, yeah, if you have an idea for a meetup, again, please send us an email, 81131podcast at gmail.com. I've listed some um, places where we think we'd like to have meetups, but honestly, we're open to any and all suggestions Uh, So let us know, shoot us an email, we would love to meet you and other listeners in person. Go to patreon.com slash Anya Kotz to see all of the Patreon perks and all of the community that's offered there. Enjoy the song, and I will catch you on the other end. So I'm walking
1: through the desert, and I'm not scared. Although it's so hot I have everything That I've requested And I do not want What I have not got I have learned so many things From my mother Oh, see how happy she made me. I will take this road so much farther. Though I know not where it takes me. I have water for my journey i have bread and i've got my wine no longer will i be hungry for the bread of life is mine so i'm walking through this desert and I'm not scared, although it's so hot. I have everything that I've ever requested. And I do not want what I have not got.
2: We're here today with one of my favorite people on earth, Anya Katz. I don't know, how would you even describe our um, rapport?
0: <laughs> well, I was gonna oh. say the feeling's mutual. Um, yeah, what is our rapport?
2: Well, so, first of all, Anya has this great podcast that you're listening to possibly because we're actually gonna be doing each other's podcast <laughs> at this moment. And your podcast is called.
0: Um, horror,
2: rapport. And, horror then,
0: rapport. and I have another one called a millennial's guide to saving the world that I do on my own.
2: And, uh, tell, so the horror rapport is, um, I actually quote you all the time. Um, because uh, I, we're going to dive into a uh, treacherous territory right away. Excellent. Um, it's the best way to do it. No. So, so, um, I listened to, uh, with great interest to your podcast that you do with your partner, Chris Ryan, Mm -hmm. who's also a dear friend for the last 10 years and also one of the stars of, uh, uh, monogamish. And that's how I met you. Mm -hmm. Um, and you guys had this amazing conversation about the Me Too movement Mm. and your kind of two critiques, let's say. Yeah um that i often kind of think about and have hel- you know kind of helped me think about this is um th- that it, there's a it's there's some kind of you know how like the the op- oppressed become the oppressor sometimes there's yeah. a sense of like this kind of paternalistic patriarchal vindictiveness yes. that seems to be baked into it yeah. instead of a like a more feminine reaction. And totally. how, how would you can, can you actually um, <laughs> unpack that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, let me speak for you. <laughs> it's not you did, you here. did
0: very well, though. Um, yeah, I guess I, I felt like there was something off about the ways that we were approaching. Like, what are we trying to do here? Are we just trying to get angry and like, express our unprocessed trauma? Or do we actually want to have relationships with each other like do we actually want men and women to get along um and it seemed like all of the things that women and to be fair this i think exists across like all identitarian movements <laughs> whether we're talking about this or gender or race or it's like you hurt us so badly for so long so now we're going to we're going to get back at you it's like we're we're <laughs> we're approaching some sort of, like, compensatory injustice instead of justice and equality for all. Um, So I felt like what women were accusing men of doing, not listening, you know, not sitting at the table, not giving them a voice, it didn't seem like we were actually offering them that either. It seemed like we were picking up on, like, yeah, let's keep doing what the men are doing just with women in charge, (laughs) Um, which doesn't make sense to me, right? Like, we should be um, approaching these issues, I think with, again, like equality and getting along and, um,
2: and, and, and a, a kind of, um, more constructive dialogue around right. it, right? Well, th-
0: of course, like that's, what's missing in my opinion. Like for me, when I, when this all first started and, uh, the Louis CK thing happened, my first reaction was like, I want to sit down and be like, dude, let's like, what happened? Like, I want to talk about it. I want yeah. to know why he did it. I want to, like, where's the underlying trauma? I mean, we're we're totally lying to ourselves if we don't think that, like, all of, you know, you know, hurt people hurt people kind of a thing. And I think until we get to the root of, like, where's the problem, we're not going to be able to move forward. Like, shame and blaming people and putting people away and canceling them. Like, it's ridiculous to me. It's just...
2: Now, now, I I have an ongoing debate with a dear friend who I respect very much, and he thinks that the the whole idea of cancel culture is actually uh, kind of an invention of the right to kind of dismiss what's happening on the left, and that... (laughs) And that, uh, yeah. and when these people, when we feel bad for like a Louis CK, he still has millions of dollars. He still has, you know, is able to reach his audience directly. Like, should we really be wasting our compassion for somebody who already has had more opportunities and still has more access to uh, an audience than 99.999% of yeah. the rest of us. Right. right? Yeah. And my counter argument to that is, is, uh, I'm not feeling bad for him. I'm feeling bad for us who no longer have this voice. (laughs) Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just like overly compassionate, but I don't, you know, no, we should treat everybody equally, regardless of whether or not they have, you know, fame or money. Like it's a person at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the Louis CK thing is just a public, you know, sort of forward facing fame, version of that story, but that kind of a situation is obviously happening in like regular culture with regular people who aren't famous. So how, how are we approaching that as an example for how we might approach this if it was our friend who got caught doing this, right? Um, And I think cancel culture is affecting like the normal person right who goes on instagram and like isn't sharing enough of whatever someone tells them to share and they're you know please do platform and you know it is happening to normal people uh so i think you know of course and to be fair like of course there is abuse and of course people are harming people and of course i'd like to prevent that um i just don't think shame and blaming people and and, and, and,
2: and retributive kind of yes. punitive and, yeah. uh, like stances about yeah. these things are the way the most evolved way. Right. Yeah. And we it's interesting. We do it with killers. Yeah. Like there, there'll be a right. lot of people who are, you know, putting, you know, standing up for the rights of violent criminals or obviously for drug crimes offenses yeah. we, we i think we all agree on us progressives that there should be no punishment for that sort of thing right. but i think even when in even in cases of violent criminals there seems to be sometimes more compassion for and a, a more kind of expansive view yeah. of like the causes of that behavior and all this kind of stuff and then as soon as it gets to something sexual it seems to be this like yeah. throw away the key right. lock them up and uh and and there and there, there there no longer is that more evolved kind of stance right. from people who are proclaimed progressives, right. right?
0: And I think a big cause of all of this to begin with is sexual repression. So by like putting it farther into the closet, by not talking about it, by encapsulating it in this sort of shame. To me is not going to actually help the problem ultimately,
2: yeah, so like, what you said in the podcast that stuck with me is like we need to unpack a little bit like why is it so traumatic for somebody to see a penis yeah right and 100%. see somebody masturbating yeah yes, of course, we need to have consent, and we need to have this is that's the the positive side of this is that there is you know a, a respect and a and a but I think that respect sometimes can turn into a fear, right? Like there's, there is an issue of like fewer and fewer people having sex because they would rather just masturbate. It's safe at home. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, uh, and like, if you make one wrong move, there's this idea that maybe you're going to suffer the consequences for, and it can happen decades later too, right? Yeah,
0: totally.
2: And so what is it that, so what do you think it is that makes people so traumatized by having an experience of like a Louis CK pulling out his dick. And, uh,
0: (laughs) yeah, there's this great article that I, that I found through Chris called, I think it's called, it's only a penis. And it was this, um, anthropologist, I think, woman who went and lived with some tribe in Africa for a while. And, um, there was some like commotion that night and in the morning, all the women were like washing clothes and sort of laughing. And she went over and she said, what happened? And, They were all carrying on and said, oh, this guy tried to like get into whoever's hut and he was found that she found him in uh, her bed and he didn't have his pants on. And then she kicked him out and he fell out the window and they were all just laughing. And she said, well, like he like he tried to rape you. And the woman said, you know, he tried to hurt you like there was no word for rape. That was the other thing. So she was trying to say, like, he tried to hurt you by coming into your thing. And she said, hurt me. How could it how could it hurt me? It's just a penis. So, like, her entire sort of, like, feminist, you know, framework didn't really work and operate in that context. Um, and it, and it, you know, I've always, I don't know, I, (laughs) I, I'm a weird person in the sense that I think, like, my dad's gay and I was raised with a very, I think, like, healthy, balanced example of, like, masculinity and manhood in a way where, and I haven't had a ton of traumatic experiences with men. Um...
2: But maybe what counts as a (laughs) traumatic experience? Do you think you've had experiences that other people would think of as traumatic? I
0: mean, that's the thing. Yep. I mean, I've definitely had cases of like sexual abuse. It's not been as intense as other people for sure. But I also think like, and we'll (laughs) get into it. Um, my mom was raped when, before I was born a few years before I was born in the middle of central park in the daytime with a gun pointed to her head. Oh my God. And I learned about this story probably too early. I think, um, But she told me about it and the way that she framed it was something along the lines of like, you know, once he was having sex with me, I was actually relieved because I thought he's getting what he wants. I'm not going to die. Oh, my God. And she she'd done a lot of therapy and a lot of like work through this. And I think at a young age, I because of that and maybe because my family in general was just pretty open about sex, like there wasn't a lot of sexual shame that I think I just sort of understood like maybe male desire in a way that other people didn't like. I, I, I normalized it in a way, um, which I think was ultimately healthy. Like people want to have sex with each other. Like the whole world is based on that pretty much. Um, so if we deny that we're denying this like major, major part of life. And instead of shaming Louis CK, like to me, all of these examples, even in the cases where they're really bad, even when someone does really rape someone, like even in these you know- situ- situations where I think people did deserve to be punished to some extent, like I have this strange understanding and compassion um for people, but men again, especially
2: it goes. Again, I think we, we're able to find it more easily when there's not a sexual crime <clears throat> involved. Yes. There are right. abolitionists. There's an yeah. abolitionist movement, which I have great sympathy for. Obviously, if you're on the right and you're listening to this, <laughs> there, there'll be no sympathy for it whatsoever, maybe. But I think that those of us who believe that incarceration sh- shouldn't, could be <clears throat> abolished altogether, Yeah, that punitive kind of retributive justice doesn't ne- is not necessary right. ever.
0: Right. Totally. I
2: think those of us who think that probably along with that kind of set of beliefs is also a sense that that that, that's most difficult to extend that to these sexual um, crimes.
0: Totally. And especially pedophilia or something like that. It becomes even worse if it involves children. It's so... I mean, and so there's
2: you know, a sense of so, so if you take this from a right-wing perspective, like my favorite conservative philosopher who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast is named Roger Scruton. do you know about mm-hmm. him? He's this, he did recently died, but he's this like British, you know, very thoughtful uh, um, Chris Ryan, your partner posted the other day, who's on Twitter, who's the most obnoxious person <laughs> who you find yourself uh, most often agreeing with? Right. For him, it was Bill Maher. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: yeah. And
2: I said, well, what, what, I think that's a really good question. But the opposite question is equally interesting is, who is the most lovely person that you most often disagree oh, yeah. with? And people usually have trouble, I think, un- th- disentangling like somebody actually being a decent human, and, yeah. and even if they have beliefs that are the opposite of yours, right? I, yeah. And so, uh, this was a philosopher I met many times at uh, conferences and he was just very open minded, very thoughtful and loved to debate and engage in conversation. And I loved having this person who I disagreed with about almost everything, um, who I could actually respect and, right. uh, and talk to And, and, um, he, he says that the reason, um, rape and prostitution are so, uh, uh, we take them so seriously, is that those things are sacred for us, mm-hmm. and that we don't uh, we don't want to talk in that language anymore. But th- when we say there's certain things that we don't want to have on the open market, yeah. right? Yeah. And when we say that when somebody's raped, it's all it's as bad as murder because you're taking something away from them. That's it's not the same. It could hurt less than being punched really hard in the face, yeah. and yet there isn't that sanctity around the um the punching right right because you don't feel like your identity's been taken away from you yeah. as like the way we think of ourselves as these sexual beings that is a, a realm that is different from a purely reductionist physicalist like yeah. interpretation of being human yeah. and i like that and i'm wondering if that's what's happening and because we're not able to admit that that's what's happening the conversation's getting like skewed right yeah. um I don't know. It's just a, a yeah. thought that I'm throwing out there because I, I, I think that there's there's a, there, these taboos and stuff they exist and we're not like talking about them as such. Yeah. And there's like a piece of the conversation missing it feels like. <clears throat> and there's this kind of incongruousness happening yeah. amongst progressives because I think there's either an a, a inability to admit that we do have certain things that we think of as sacred and like uh, I think Nietzsche said that the definition of the sacred is that which we cannot laugh about.
3: Mm.
2: And we don't want to say that we have sacred things, but right. we do because the, right. God forbid you tell a joke about this stuff or yeah. you take it lightly or something like, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not that's saying that, that we, that that's not, that we shouldn't think of these things as sacred, but I think that maybe acknowledging them as such, and then having an honest conversation about it would yeah. be helpful. And then how do we align it with the rest of our beliefs in the sanctity of, for example, a human life that shouldn't be destroyed right. based on a behavior that was right. wrong.
0: Well, and secret, I mean, that's an interesting way to look at it too. I think it is, you know, if you, if you look back to pre-Judeo-Christian religion, sex was extremely sacred and there were like sacred prostitutes. And it was very baked into like, uh, female sexuality, especially was symbolic and representative of like harvest and of life and of creativity. Like they were synonymous. Um, and then we tried to separate sex from religion, which I think is really unnatural. Uh, and I think we're all confused because again, like sex is so primary and should be so integrated into our lives, but it isn't. Um, and yet we can't make it go away. So, you know, it's like anything like, you know, you learn when you're little, like, don't, you know, express your anger. If you like put it in a closet, it's going to come out as some monster later, you know? Um, and I think it's the same with sex and.
2: So food and sex both are these, like, I think we're very lucky as a species because we have these like primal biological urges that are like necessary to push the human race forward. Mm hmm. And it could be that the food we tasted, the ate tasted awful and we only ate every once in a while and it would have to involve, you know, some real uh, you know, unpleasantness. Yeah. And there are other species that for which sex is very painful and the, yeah. one of the partners dies and, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and the penis <laughs> is spiky and, yeah, exactly. and it's only rape and like, yeah, yeah. we're lucky that these two biological, you know, necessities feel good. Yeah. Um, are, and more importantly than feeling good, they are domains for, uh, in which meaning can happen beyond the biological urge and they're not mutually exclusive. So if you have a meal, it's not, we're just, we're not just getting our vitamins and minerals. We're sitting down together and we're sharing an important moment with our family, with our friends. There's a whole culture and ritual that's born around it. We go to a restaurant, like and, and, and the the presentation, it brings in all of the senses, it brings in all of our history, it brings in our connection to the <clears throat> land yeah. uh, of where the food is grown, all of this stuff. So in the, um, in the realm of food, we've moved past a kind of a petty morality. Yeah. Which there used to be, because food was dangerous in the like time biblical times. There's as many strictures against uh, you know eating the wrong way as there are against sexual and things. And
0: they're and they're they're quite tied to sex too. Like there's a lot of connections between like Kellogg's creating whatever cornflakes to so bland so people wouldn't masturbate. Like there's a lot of strange connections between yes. sexuality and food for sure.
2: So so there are domains of. Of um, I think uh, Foucault called it like problematization,
0: yeah,
2: right. And um, but so there's a way I think that we should learn from our food practices because we don't want to McDonaldize sex, no, right? We right. don't want to make it cheap mm-hmm. and 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 the same everywhere. And, uh, so that's not when, when we want to liberate sexuality, I don't, we have to be careful not to go to think of that as trivializing. Right. But we found, we have this great example in food that you can have it three times a day. You have to, you don't have to feel guilty that you're eating. You can, um, you can have it be plentiful and abundant Mm -hmm. and, 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 and free from shame. Yeah and uh and free from punishment and all of these things and and still aware that it's possible to abuse it yeah. and it's possible to you know uh you know yeah it can become like a drug yeah. but for 99.9 percent of people it's not and we're able to like sit down and ritualize it and have and realize it's not mutually exclusive to have the biological urge with all of these other layers of meaningfulness right. so it doesn't mean that in fact they they they, they help each other it's mutually uh yeah. There's mutual aid there, right? Yeah. Like if yeah. the 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 more beautiful and meaningful the meal is, probably the most nutritious it is too, <laughs> yeah, and it's totally. not a coincidence, yeah, right? Sure. So, I think that um we should take those practices around keeping the meal sacred and recognizing that it's a, a, a place that we can have, uh, meaning and, and opportunity for gratitude yeah. and for togetherness and communion and, and, and very high level kind of, uh, significance. Right. And at the same time, take strip it away from like these outdated moral beliefs that just aren't necessary right. anymore. Cause it used to be dangerous to eat the wrong food, right? right. Like you could yeah. get trichinosis from like eating pork and that's probably right. tied to why there was so much like, concern about it. Right? right.
0: Yeah. Like the purity of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think honestly, like that's partially why, and I'm curious how this started for you growing up, like what the dynamic was around sex, like what, why, <laughs> you know, cause I think people, there are certain people that are raised in these very sort of sexually shamed environments. And then those of us who weren't necessarily, um, and, and it's incredibly, it's been difficult for me, I think, because I, I just felt so confused and lost all the time. I also studied gender and sexuality in school. So like, this was always so primary to me as a topic of discussion or as a thing to do or as, um, and I find it so incredibly relieving to come to places like your house or, you know, go to environments or little worlds where it's not that everyone's having sex all the time. It's just that we're not, trying to put time. it right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it's just, you know, you, a, a sexual environment, I guess. Like I remember being here a couple of years ago and like everyone was kind of topless and being tied up and no one was having sex actually, but it was like, Oh, this is the type of party that everyone wishes they went to like, or wished they were at, you know, everyone's thinking about like, I wonder what that chick looks like without her shirt on or like everyone's thinking about this stuff. Um, and to just be in an environment where we don't have to pretend we're not thinking about it is like the most relaxing sort of reassuring, comforting place to me.
2: Yeah. I I feel very lucky in the sense that I was raised in a very, uh, you know, liberated and sexually charged environment. Um, I do think a lot, some of this is obviously genetic Yeah. that like, um, a friend of mine, once we were talking about, I just kind of started experimenting with polyamory and she's British and was very traditional. And she says, do you think how it's possible that all these polyamorous people just have in common, just a a very high sex drive? (laughs) Yeah. And I definitely think obviously that's, that's part of it. I also had parents who just did the rebelling I don't want to say for me, but like most people, I think maybe of our generation or of most generations, their parents are more conservative than, yeah. uh, um, and you have a, but we are in a, an unusual time where I think actually the parents or the sixties generation <laughs> yeah. were, were more liberated totally. and they did, they, they, they really rebelled hard yeah. and, and then the pendulum swung back a bit. And it's in some ways, I think it's good because I think they they threw away the baby with the bathwater a little bit. Like, for example, uh, I think there's parallels with psychedelics, too. I think that like if you listen to Timothy Leary speaking in the 60s, they're like, everyone should quit their job. No one over 40 should be allowed to vote. Uh, There's nothing worth keeping of in the last 2000 years of Western civilization. (laughs) And I think that nowadays there's a sense of like, oh no, how can we incorporate this into a uh into a a culture that has some things worth keeping? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with monogamy. Like I think that the free love communes of the 60s were saying like, let's just explode everything because they were coming out of a society yeah. that was so repressed. But then we saw the kind of some of the shortfalls of that because it maybe it didn't recognize that we do have a desire and a need for some constancy and some predictability right. and some sense of companionship with one person. Yeah. And so I think that now the, the, the polyamory or the ethical non-monogamy movements recognize that those traits exist in us and it's okay to acknowledge them, but right. we can then push more gently at those boundaries boundaries. Yeah. And um so I I think you know I I explore a lot of, a lot of this in my film monogamish like in my family some of the kids my grandfather had several kids around the same time I was born so I have uncles and aunts that are my age and and there was a sense a little bit amongst some of us that life was a little too unpredictable and a little too wild mm-hmm. and a little, you know, that, that especially children maybe want some sense of predictability and some sense of, 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 uh, normalcy yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, yeah. And I grew up kind of a little bit fearful of rebellion and wanting to kind of impose some sort of order mm. and, um, and that's why I was kind of nerdy and, and a bookworm and like into being a good student. And neither of my parents went to, uh, you know, finished high school even. And I took pride in the fact that, you know, I, I showed up and did my homework and yeah. did well in school and, and, and I didn't try drugs until much later in life than most people, mm-hmm. like in my late twenties, early thirties. And I started to realize, okay, I can, now I have the foundation, And I can, and I also tended towards long monogamous relationships. I was married for almost 10 years monogamously. I had like the same girlfriend all through high school and college. So I was quite square actually, to be honest. Like I, uh, I was even a Republican in the sixth grade. (laughs) Confession. I had my just hair hair grade. parted, yeah, just in the sixth grade. But my mom had a boyfriend who was a stockbroker, and 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 I thought I wanted to be a businessman. And I had That's glasses funny. and my hair parted on the side like George Bush Senior. And like,
0: didn't last very long.
2: No, but it lasted less, more longer than you would imagine. Like I I, I was kind of uh, pushed towards a more uh, rebellious stance by through from music. Hmm and skateboarding
1: Mm
2: -hmm. like put me those are two like little like passions I had as a teenager that then showed me like oh wait I do have this uh (laughs) side of me that's also maybe a little less uh uh, conformist right yeah have you seen the movie the conformist Uh -uh. oh it's one of the great films of all time Bernardo Bertolucci is one of his first uh masterpieces and there's this kind of uh tie between rep- sexual repression and, and fascism mm-hmm. and um, which I think is 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 worth uh, thinking about yeah that repression leads to this desire for a false sense of uh, of security that comes from a kind of surface level uh, imposition of structure mm-hmm. right yeah and I think I craved that as a child like I wanted things to to have structure and yeah. to have predictability. And I think that the, 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 the unconscious push between right, I mean, the, the unconscious conflict between right and left is a, 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 a need for hierarchy versus a desire to like create a less boundary defined, uh, yeah. world. Right.
0: Yeah. And it's very, I mean, I did it too. And even though I grew up in a sort of unconventional family, I, would often talk about the sort of life I wanted to lead or the sort of relationship I wanted to be in. And the reaction I would get all the time was like, good luck with that. (laughs) Like, sounds great. I want to have this close, intimate partnership and I want it to be open. And I want, like, the openness to, like, add to the intimacy of that. And I want to live in this world, basically. And it was just, like, a bunch of people, like, sounds great, but it's never going to happen. And for some reason, I guess that was loud enough that I listened to it and I also, like started working in marketing and like got married and was living in San Diego and like bought a house. And I mean, that it was ended in a total crisis. Uh, but I just, I didn't know where to go. Like, I didn't know where to put myself basically. I just thought like, maybe I'm just one of the very few people who's like this. And I so want to like part- this being like how, well, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to describe just completely unconventional. Like I go, you know, me in the conventional world has always felt very strange. Like whether that's the types of relationships, the types of schedules, jobs, like where people shop, what they're shopping for. The whole thing is like malls, like all of it was always very foreign to me. And I had to sort of fit myself into it. Um, And the life I wanted to be living was like out in nature somewhere and, you know, happy and half naked in a pool or, you know, just like,
2: and now you're living this and now
0: I'm doing it finally. But it took me, it's crazy to me because I always knew I wanted it. It wasn't like I discovered later on in life that this is who I was. I've always known. I just didn't know how to create that life for myself. And I think also I was just really, I was, got, you know, I met the person I married when I was 22 and I think we got married when I was like 25. Um, So I just didn't have a lot of experience and, uh, yeah, I, uh, it took a long time for me to finally be like, actually that, that life could exist. I could do that. Actually, there are people I, and I think part of that was actually finding Chris's podcast. Um,
2: which is called tangentially speaking. Yeah. And, um, the three best episodes of course are with me.
0: (laughs) They are good. (laughs) Yeah. Chris,
2: Chris, (laughs) Chris is the one who inspired, uh, he was one of the first podcasters I met. This is like uh, 10 years ago, and he had just come off the success of Sex at Dawn. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm doing this thing, this podcast. And he had a little recorder. And to be honest, I didn't believe in it at all. <laughs> I was like, What's he doing? But yeah. he was determined. And then now, like hundreds and hundreds of episodes later, he's yeah. like, it's given you guys both like an, an, an amazing freedom, right? Like to be yeah. able to just like live in Colorado on your beautiful land on, yeah. and and travel around for months at a time in yeah. your van. Yeah, they have a Sprinter yeah. van. I think this. Have um, I told you my Freudian uh, interpretation of why we love uh, our trailers and RVs? Uh uh-uh. So you know, Esther Perel talks about how we we have uh, uh, conflicting desires and needs that we try and get from the same person right so on one hand we want safety and security and predictability on the other hand we want uh you know eroticism and danger and the unknown and and, and adventure and 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 one of the main problems of contemporary relationships is that we we think that if one person can't fulfill all of those things then there's something wrong with them or there's something wrong with us or something wrong with the relationship
3: yeah
2: and and that this is a good case for like allowing a little bit more openness. But my theory is that while we can't have both of those things in a human, we can have them in an RV (laughs) because on the one hand, it's this like phallic projectile, you know, missile going out into the world. Yeah. And it's like finding always new things. And then inside you have this womb, like predictable, safe, totally. and always the same environment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. People are always surprised when we like go and park in someone's driveway. They're like, Oh, we made up the bed and the room for you. And we're like, Actually, no, like, thank you. But no, like, this is what this is our home. This is literally where we live. Why would we not sleep in our bedroom? It's you a know? sprinter van from,
2: uh, <laughs> how old is the sprinter van?
0: Oh, uh, I don't know. I think, 2012 maybe it's so. really
2: cool yeah. and they call it vanthropology right <laughs> yeah
0: scarlet joe vanson
2: scarlet jo yeah um yeah so so uh they're just to set the scene here we're on uh my little compound in joshua tree and uh chris and anya i haven't seen them since covid but they're you know, two of my dearest friends. And, um, when they come, it's wonderful because they're like turtles. They have their house on their back. <laughs> I don't have to worry about
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: hosting <Right. laughs> um, or, or, or making beds or anything. And it's just a wonderful pl- way to be like, yeah. just to have this kind of nomadism and really kind of walking the walk when it comes to, uh, living a more, liberated life. I think you guys are just really, really set an amazing example. Um, it's not, it's not theoretical. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah. It's so crazy to hear you say that too, because I feel like so much of what I'm doing or wanted to do was like inspired by you too. Like I heard how so, (laughs) well, I feel, I think, I don't know. I heard your episode on Chris's podcast, one of them at least early on. Um, and I remember when I was, like, coming up, creating the podcast, which took a while for me to, like, figure out what I was trying to do and what I wanted to say. Um, and this isn't Horror Report, this is the other podcast, but I had a list of, like, the guests I wanted to have, and some of them were, like, totally, probably impossible to get. Um, but you were in that top, there were, like, five. five. It was, like, yeah, you yeah. and Gabor Mate or something. Um, and, yeah, I I, I think what... When I heard the podcast episode with you and you, I sort of saw photographs, maybe followed you on Instagram and saw what you were creating here. It was like, oh, that's exactly the energy or the thing that I've been trying to figure out how to create. Right. Like, and I think a lot of it is, and people do this with non-monogamy too. I did where... I, you know, the, you understand the ideology or you understand it theoretically, but it's like, how do I put this into practice? Like, how do I actually create this? And I felt like what you were doing was like, oh okay, that's a blueprint of sorts. I would like to do that too. Like, and I think we all should be doing that to some extent creating these little worlds. I
2: think you're pointing at the importance of community. Yes. And, and I think that uh, I tried to have an open relationship in my twenties and the word polyamory didn't exist. And we literally thought we were inventing this thing, which as far as we were concerned, we were because we didn't know anybody else who was doing it. Yeah. And, um, there was nothing to fall back on when there was issues. Right. And we had to just like be inventing it from scratch at every turn. And I think that that is very difficult. Um, and there's a reason yeah. when we get married, for example, that we do it in public. Right. We do yeah. it in front of all of our friends and family. Why? It's not Some people say, "Oh, it's just a private thing. It's the thing that you you two have. Like, why do you need to go and announce it? Why do you need to have a piece of paper about it? Like, Mm -hmm. and I I disagree with that. I think that we do need to announce it because we are communal creatures." And we do need to, when we get married, we're asking our friends and family to acknowledge and recognize us as this thing, which is real. It's not an opinion. It's not like, oh, I think they're married, but he doesn't think they're married. (laughs) Right? Like we want it to be an objective fact. Right. And I think that that goes for uh, uh, ethical non-monogamy as well. Like we want to have a sense of support that a community can provide. Yeah. And, and a recognition that, that if things aren't going swimmingly, then that's okay. And that, that you have people to talk to who understand uh, the issues involved and that,
0: um, yeah. Yeah. And I think like, it was so incredibly helpful for me to see what you were doing or to actually witness people who had these types of relationships or who who were living the type of life I wanted to live. And then I thought. I wasted so much time in my 20s not doing what I wanted to do basically because I didn't have examples of other people doing it to sort of like feel like one, it was possible, but also kind of understand how it worked. Um, And when I started my podcast, it was like, I would like to do that for someone else as well, because how many other people there has to be so many of them who are all weird like me, who all, you know, have always wanted uh, an open relationship or just to live in an unconventional way. And maybe a big problem is just that they don't see anyone else doing it. And so they, they decide it's not possible or it's not worth it, or they're going to be alone for the rest of their lives. Right. Like, and that was a big, that's a big problem. I think, like, I think, uh, speaking of Gabarmati he says like humans have two needs, um, attachment and authenticity, mm. but when one threatens, the other we will always choose attachment, like because we're communal because we want to be with people. Um, and I think that's what so many people are doing. It's like, Oh, I have these options, but these are the only options and I don't want to be alone and I don't want to be ostracized and I don't want to be cast off from, from society. So I guess I'll just do what everyone else is doing. Um, so yeah, I I was, I was super grateful to, to have you be one of those examples of like, Oh, okay. It is happening. I could do it. And now let me like, do that for somebody else
2: it's totally mutual it's totally mutual i feel that way about both of you guys and um yeah and and, you know it's also just so refreshing and wonderful to see the to have a, a a woman's perspective on it i don't know. i think about male sexuality a lot like you said like um you were raised thinking about it a lot. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that there's a sense in our day and age that it's just a negative force in a way. Yeah. And that, um, you know, men who are guided by it, there's something deeply wrong with them. Right.
3: Yeah.
2: And that there's, <laughs> a, I don't know, there's a, there's a sense even amongst the most liberated people to, uh, a, a, a propensity to pathologize. Yes. And, and I think it's, you have this wonderful perspective that, that, that is just in your face about guys, let's not do this. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I've come to the conclusion that like, I think the best metaphor for male sexuality is fire. Mm-hmm. Like you can, it can burn the house down. Right. It can be used to, in, in a destructive way. Yeah. Right. Um, and we have to recognize that, yeah. that potentiality. Yeah. But it also can cause warmth and cook our food and make us, you know, able to function in the world in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. Right. Right.
0: And I think, you know, for young men, you know, the more we normalize, you know, and you ask any, and that's the other thing too, like I had, how many women have actually like sat down with a six year, 16 year old boy? Like, how does it feel to have an erection at all times of day and like not know what to do with it and not know who to talk to about it? I mean, I have a lot of compassion for it. And I think also like, Like we're talking about desire, I think to some extent, right? And I, I, I think that's a big part of horror porn. We say is like to depathologize desire. To me, I think there is always like information and juice and fascinating stuff that comes as a result of actually being honest about with ourselves about what we desire, Um, and I think that's what drives us, right? Like let's put sex aside for a second, but when we you know, get a job or build a house or decide where we want to live. It's all because we want it. You know, we want that we're desiring of it. To me, desire fuels life to some extent, right? Like we're constantly chasing what we want. And of course that can be, that can become negative or it can become narcissistic or we're hoarding or whatever. Um, but I think in, in a healthy expression is is super beautiful and primary to our species. Um, So I've never felt like, if there's a guy, like, I always, I like love being catcalled. I just like, hell, like, yes, like this is, they're, they're not harming me. They're not, I get that sometimes that can happen, but it's like, this person is like, Hey, I see you. You're beautiful. Why wouldn't I be into that? You know, (laughs) but I'm like, I'm like totally the outlier in that situation. I, I don't know. I I just think it's, um, it should be celebrated.
2: There was, there was a famous clip on YouTube of a woman, um, like dressed kind of not that provocatively, but she had this like a very small waist and she's wearing these black jeans. Have you seen this in this like white Uh t-shirt and she had someone secretly follow her and then just show like what she had to go through all day long of she's walking around New York and everyone is like, woo damn girl. Like all like everywhere she walks in every neighborhood, the cat calls, the whistles, the, the, the turning and everything like that. And, um, And, you know, she was, like, wanting to show how difficult it was. And then uh, it was interesting because this, first of all, a guy decided to do the same thing. One of the fittest dudes you've ever seen in your life, put on a really tight T-shirt and these tight jeans, Latino, hot, you know, handsome, bracing man. And he's like, okay, watch. And then he had the same thing, like, (gasps) girls looking at him, smiling, guys, like, like just getting... Uh. And then a lot of the comments that were critical were like, OK, first of all, there's an a, a uncomfortable kind of racial and class thing going on here right. because she was obviously kind of wealthy and like walking around neighborhoods mm. that were much uh, less well off than she was. And there was like an implicit bias against, uh, you know, minority cultures and poorer cultures mm. that are maybe have a little bit. Um, less PC attitudes about these things, They do, yeah. but also they have a recognition that there's like, uh, this is a pleasure that's free, right. That we can yeah. all have, um, yeah. the looking at somebody who's beautiful. Yeah. Like, and are we really going to take that away from, yeah. from, from people and criticize and say that you're somehow, yeah. uh, morally reprehensible because you appreciate somebody attractive walking by. Again, there is, there are attitudes that can be, uh, but I, I don't know this whole thing of like, like not feeling safe. I had an interaction that was, again, people are going to think I'm crazy for announcing this all the time, but I don't lock my doors. I don't lock, I have no locks on any of my, uh, trailers here. And I've had over 2000 guests here. Um, I never had even a pen go missing. Yeah. And, um, and I, I just take, they handed me the key to the house when I bought it. That's the first and last time I saw it. And, um, and it's, it's just also, it's a natural disposition I have. Yeah. And I'm sure it goes hand in hand with openness and all a lot of these other things we've talked about, yeah. but I just have never locked my car door. I leave my key in the ignition. Like I just, I, it doesn't matter what neighborhood I'm in
3: Yeah.
2: and I've never had to go missing. In fact, the only time that I used to argue with my ex-wife about this. And I remember once she convinced me to lock the door and I left the tripod in the backseat <laughs> Of their of a car, and someone broke the window and stole the tripod. And the window fixing was way more expensive uh, than the tripod. And I was like, "Look, if we left the door open, they would just such open the a door. So
0: yeah. <laughs> they could
2: have just opened the door and just right. grabbed the tripod, right?" Right. Anyway, so the other day, I had a really unpleasant interaction with somebody who was a guest who was, had not been here before, and she was, of course, from San Francisco. <laughs> and she said, "I don't feel safe coming down." And you didn't. You should have made it more obvious in the listing that there uh, that there's no keys and there's no way of locking the, so I started trying to accommodate her and say, yeah. like, but there was this, there's this, there's this immediate thing. I don't feel safe, which is a thing that, right. that you hear a lot these days. And I think is rightly criticized yeah. in, you know, uh, the, 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 the coddling of yes. the, uh, American mind or whatever it was that book that Jonathan read. Yeah Um, so, So this got off to a bad start, this, this, uh, not feeling safe and it got a little contentious, but I was trying to figure out a way to accommodate, but I was also maybe being a little defensive. I was like, look, I've been here for five years. I've had thousands of guests. I will personally guarantee your stuff. If anything goes missing, it's on me. That didn't help. And finally I was like, okay, because you want a full refund. She wanted to cancel the the reservation. So then I said, okay, um, there'll be a lock on your door by the time you get here. I'm going to call a locksmith and like have a lock installed. And then she was like, well, now I just don't feel comfortable coming down after we've had this, this interaction. And I was like, it has
0: nothing to do with that really at the end of the day. Well, no,
2: so it had turned the fact that there had been like a a, a confrontation between us made now there was a new problem. Right. So, so then I was like, okay, I'm going to, There's a that you could respond by getting confrontational, or you can just just be as open and 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 loving and Mm -hmm. and and accommodating as you possibly can. Yeah. So then she asked for a video of the of like the the scene with the bathroom and how do you get the you know from the trailer to the bathroom and everything. And I was like, I decided, okay, I'm (laughs) gonna just humor this a hundred percent, and I so I I decided to make these videos from a really loving and vulnerable place of like, this is how I live. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah. You're going to be okay. (laughs) And, um, and it was, it was, it was lovely. Like she, she, so, so she, she apologized. She was like, I'm really sorry. I, I, of thinking the worst. Um, like this seems lovely. It seems, it seems amazing. Um, didn't she have to cancel for some reason? I wonder if that like wasn't part of the motivating thing for all this the to begin whole, with. Oh, wow. Well. Um, <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, anyway, yeah. I, this is a long story to say. Um, I think we have, I think a lot of pol- political perspectives are kind of deeply dispositional. Mm-hmm. And some people have yes. dispositions that are more uh, just, naturally open and wanting to break down barriers and some people will want and you can find examples to justify whatever your perspective is and you're never going to be able to convince somebody by examples yeah because just the fact that i haven't been robbed or killed so far right yeah I, i remember i said what are you more concerned about like locking the door from the outside so your stuff is safe or being able to lock the door from the inside when you're in right and she was like I'm so baffled right now. You mean I can't lock it even when I'm in there? I was like, I'm sorry. Like it literally is a non-issue and that, that seems crazy to some people who live in constant fear of needing to have walls. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, and, and I get frustrated sometimes because there's that like common assumption or agreement that apparently all women have made. Like you don't understand what it's like to like walk to your car in a city at the end of the night and you're just constantly like, you have to hold your key in your hand. Cause you're just constantly worried that someone's going to like rape or murder you. I was like, I've never had that experience. So that's fine that you have, but that's your personal contextual subjective experience and I have a different one. And, and the fact that I have a different one doesn't, I'm not saying your perspective or opinion is wrong. I'm just trying to say that you're one human and there's a lot of other humans (laughs) with lots of other opinions and experiences. And I'm not going to be pulled into that. Like I'm not going to be pulled into the camp of being afraid just because someone else is, you know? Um, and I just don't experience that. I, I move through the world and if I was raped, OK, like, but I'm certainly not going to live my entire life like anticipating my rape. Like, what the hell? What kind of a life is that?
2: I had a guest the other day from Oakland who was an, an abolitionist um, and she had gotten robbed at gunpoint in Oakland. And the, 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 the guy got nervous and shot her and the bullet entered her her thigh on one side, just missed her main artery there. Uh, grazed her labia, she said. And I mean, she she had entry and exit wound in the middle of her thigh. Wow. And I was like, so what happened? She's like, I didn't press charges. I didn't call the police. And I, I wanted to kiss her feet. Yeah. I was like so amazed. She was like where that... Because one thing is in theory. And another thing then is in practice. Because yeah. I've always had, again, this is a dispositional thing. I'm not going to convince you of it through examples or tell you like, Oh, bad shit doesn't happen. But yeah, the few times bad shit has happened to me, there's no part of me wants to involve an authority that yeah. I despise right. and that I don't accept yeah. anything about, I, I don't think it's helpful. I think yeah. that I think to me, these people walking around with uniforms and guns do more harm than good. And if somebody stole my stuff, I would see it as a tax on getting to live the wonderful way that I do.
3: Yeah.
2: So now it's I've, right. I've had, I've accumulated enough wonderful experience of not living in fear yeah. that it would be worth whatever they could take from me. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Totally. and then, and then as far as that sense of like, like physical safety, there was a guy in the nineties who wrote a book called bomb the suburbs. And I don't remember the name of him, but he did, uh, A bet with America, he said, because people think of, like, the danger of being in, like, bad neighborhoods. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, I'm going to go to every bad neighborhood in the country, and I'm going to go by myself at 2 in the morning with no protection whatsoever, and I'm going to make a wager. (laughs)
3: Right.
2: And the the, the, the stakes are my life. I'm going to bet my life, because if you guys are right that all this is so dangerous, maybe I'm going to get killed, right? Yeah. I think I'm going to be fine. And, um, and if I win the bet and that nothing does happen, all I ask is that, that you just open your mind a little and live a little less in fear of the unknown of the, of the other, you know, which we so often do. Like we otherize the, uh, the, especially people in who, who have less. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, I, I, and I, I don't know. I, um. I feel like I definitely, I mean, probably because I learned about that thing from my mother at a young age, but I remember thinking like, okay, so rape, that's a possibility that could happen to me. Let me think about this in a way or like train myself to the, to the point where if it did happen to me, it wouldn't ruin my life or be traumatizing, which is, I mean, of course, who knows how that situation is going to go or any situation is going to go in the moment. But I do think we have a choice about how we move through the world. And I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that like punishing someone or calling the cops or like, what do people say? Like making someone take accountability, whatever that means is actually going to help in the end. Like to me, that's totally removing our agency to say, I can't heal from my trauma or I can't, I can't live a happy life unless someone else does something or unless someone else is punished or someone else takes responsibility. Um, And, and like, I've, you know, like I had a very difficult relationship with my mother growing up, um, and had to sort of stop speaking to her for a period of time just to like get myself together. Uh, and we, we have a relationship now, but, um, I feel like I learned a lot through that of like coming to terms with, you know, what I had experienced going through the, the part where I was super angry and like, how could you do this to me? And Um, you know, you hurt me in all these ways when I was a kid and, and like, okay. And then I got to the place of like, that's not ultimately going to help me to just be angry with her forever and, and force her to take responsibility for something. Um, I can grieve and I can process all of this and I can heal and I can grow up without that. I don't need someone else to tell me. (laughs) you know, you were right. Like I can, I I say something all the time where like we can accept responsibility without taking the blame for something. Mm -hmm. And I think people have a really hard time with that. Uh, they think that by coming from that place of agency or empowerment of like, yes, I was raped, but I'm I'm okay. And I'm not going to blame that person. Like they're super troubled, obviously. And
2: when uh, I interviewed um, the, um, um, the Dossie Easton who wrote the ethical slut. Yeah. Um, she said she, she, she had a moment of realizing how far her kind of worldview and, you know, kind of structures differed, how, how, how much they differed from the mainstream. Yeah. There was a woman who has husband, husband had cheated on her and she wrote an article in cosmopolitan or something saying that she decided to forgive him and that (laughs) they were, they were moving on. right? Right. And, um, together. Yeah. And a lot of the comments were like, "How can anyone with any self respect
1: right.
2: you know uh, uh accept that this had happened to them and she said, "I just literally could not comprehend what someone's self respect has to do with what somebody else happened to do on their free time right. and that, yeah. and and that how somehow forgiving somebody it's, gives you less <laughs> yeah. sense of agency and um and power totally. yeah." And and she said it just didn't compute for her. And she said, I realize that there's this chasm between mine and the and the the mainstream perspective yeah. on these issues. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I I don't want to going into the rape uh, dialogue. I don't feel like I, it's my place to, to to opine on this. I'm not a woman. Um, of course, men are raped a lot in prison. Yeah. I think, um, and it does happen. You know, there, there are we can be victims of it as well but i think in in the realm of these other things like infidelity that's a little less fraught and yeah. but we we can like discuss the philosophical underpinnings of it of like how do we take how do we empower ourselves from a uh, from a kind of attitude of f- forgiveness of dialogue of, and I, I think I made a mistake early on, and but I, I don't know. I, we can discuss this. Do you think that it's right to divide it between like a feminine and a masculine mm-hmm. attitudinal, or is that a little retrograde?
0: It is to I, I mean, it is to me because I, to me, I'm not talking about gender specifically. I'm just talking about like energetic qualities that can exist outside of a human. Good, right? good, good, good. Yeah. So I think yeah, for me, I I find those that terminology actually super helpful and of course we as people contain both of those energies within us but i i mean for me growing up like i i as i think many of us were we were only taught about masculine forms of value and power and so we think in order to have value and power in society we have to take on these sort of like ownership domination these like more sort of masculine you know protection like all these women going back to the workplace as a way of empowerment is that Is that what we want to do? Or is there some sort of feminine version of power and value that we've lost along the way? Of course we have. Right. Like, of course we have. Um, And it's very difficult to practice. Like, to me, I think vulnerability, for example, is very feminine. I think trust is very feminine. I think relinquishing control is a very sort of feminine characteristic. But how do we do that in a society that takes that so easily can take advantage of that? Um, Mm. So it's like, how can I find places in the world now with people in certain environments where I can do that safely, where I can sort of practice and honor and remind myself and others that there are these other forms of value and power that we've lost along the way. And I think that's the way, you know, reminding ourselves of that, like, if there's going to be some sort of revolution against the patriarchy, it should be sort of like... Matriarchal and feminine in nature, in my opinion, you know, it shouldn't be the same medicine um, that we've been taking this whole time.
2: So, what does it look like? Can you unpack that a little bit more? Like <laughs> yeah. in these realms that we're talking about, like of the 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 Me Too movement, of cancel culture, yeah. insofar as it exists, I, I I accept that you know maybe some of it is exaggerated, but. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the alternative? Like, can you, can you, can you give some examples of like how you would approach in this more?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, I think it's very difficult to do any of this because we are so far removed from our natural human environments, right? Like we should be living in a community of a hundred people, in Mm -hmm. which case someone does something badly you know that person well, so you can engage with them about it. They're not some like random actor on a screen or some random person on social media who you can't communicate with. So I think part of the, like to me, the biggest revolution is to get back to that environment so that we can engage with each other in more productive ways. Um, I'm not sure how I can, how I can necessarily say that this like widespread cultural me too movement could be different because like the premise is entirely wrong is entirely wrong to begin with. Right. Like the fact that we're canceling a celebrity for doing something, we don't know them. We weren't there. Like the whole thing is messed up from the beginning. Like, it doesn't make any sense. So I don't, I think, good, I, good. so I think you have to just like tear the whole thing down <laughs> to begin with. Um, and again, if we were living in these smaller communities, um, you know, and just like getting back to the land and actually loving each other and being happy and pursuing pleasure and desire without guilt or shame. And I, I don't think these problems would happen in the first place, you know, to, to even have to solve because they're all to me, so much of it is as a result of the fact that we're not living the way that we should be living. Um, very good. Across the Do dark. you
2: think about anarchism?
0: Yes. <laughs> Do
2: you consider yourself an anarchist?
0: Um, Maybe, maybe I, I do not under, I don't understand how things will change without something like that. (laughs) Like I do feel like.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking more in terms of like, there's an, there's an ideal of anarchism, which is exactly what you're talking about. Like uh, smaller communities. Yes. (laughs) Self-determined. Yes. um, And a rejection of, you know, dominant, the hierarchical systems. Yes.
0: Yes. I, hundred um,
2: percent. I think we can do it. I don't think we're going to, uh, we're not going to win that in a confrontational way no. they, they've got too many guns. Like yeah, yeah. we need to <laughs> yes. just lead by example, I, I think. Right. And oh, I think, yes. uh, and, and create these little pockets of community. Yes. Like we are a hundred people. I think probably like the, uh, our group of, of, of friends and, and, and our, our our tribe, right. Right. That we all feel. And, and, and I do have some faith in the, in the positive aspect of the technology that allows, that is able to nurture these things, podcasts being one thing, part of it. The fact that you guys are able to live in your, in this van. It's so cool. Like, that then I can also like listen to you guys and we can communicate on our phones. And, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think that, I, 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 I guess I'll probably get into this with Chris a bit cause he's much more pessimistic about <laughs> technology. technology and, <laughs> and contemporary life. Uh, but I, I, I like to think that there's a, a way that we can able, we can take up the best of these, uh, we can, we can learn from our ancient, past yeah. from our nomadism but have a kind of contemporary take on it that doesn't th- again doesn't throw away the baby with the bathwater.
3: yeah
2: i think it's i think it's it's lovely to be able to use this use the technologies in service of it yeah and 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 um you know listen to conversations like this instead of you know the latest uh canceling that's going on right. or-
0: turning the news on. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if it weren't for that technology and podcasts, I wouldn't be here, right? Like that was so valuable to me. And I, and I think it's important now, and I'll, I'll say this on my podcast all the time, like it's okay to create community in unconventional ways because I think, yes, ideally we all buy a patch of land somewhere and we create our own community and we have friends there and we're all living reciprocally and that's the ideal. But that's hard to get to and also it takes a while. So in the meantime, it's like, I have all these people in a community listening to my podcast and they created all these different ways that they can communicate with each other and meet each other and support each other. Um, and that's great. Like I'm, (laughs) that needs to happen. And I'm really glad it can through these specific types of, of technologies. Um, it's important.
2: And, and, and can I ask, how do you guys, um, structure your openness do you guys have rules around kind of ethical non-monogamy or is it just everybody does what they want when they want or?
0: Yeah. We don't really talk about it publicly. Um, <laughs> that's one rule.
2: You have a, you have a rule that you don't talk about it.
0: Well, I just, I, I mean, it actually goes back to the conversation that we were talking about earlier about the sacredness. It's not something where, where we keep from our friends to any extent, but I think it's right. something that like, the relationship in and of itself is is sacred, and nice. there are certain things that, you know, there's levels like certain things that only we share, certain things that we share with our friends, and then certain things that we feel comfortable sharing publicly. Um, I will say though that it's something that we created together, um, which I, I think is interesting because when we we so crave the rule book, like I did, like tell me how this works, tell me how you put this together in real life. Um, I think what actually happens is that while there's this like umbrella, non-monogamy openness thing, every couple and every dynamic is going to be unique and you sort of can create whatever you specifically want in that container. And I think that's really cool and really freeing. Like, I don't think I would have the same kind of relationship or dynamic with every different type of person. Right. I feel like we were talking about this last night. Like it gives you a way to, explore all these different parts of your personality in different contexts. Um, so, yeah. <laughs>
2: um, cool. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this was a dual podcast. Um, yeah,
2: yeah. By the way, like if you're listening to this on being in the world, go find Anya on Horror Rapport. <laughs> yeah. And what's the name of the other one?
0: A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World.
2: Yeah. And, um, and vice versa. Yes. I, I do like this idea of like, uh, cross pollination. I do. I hope that we can get people to each other's, uh, uh, worlds because yeah. there, there, there's a lot of common ground and I've, I've, you know, I've, I've loved meeting people that, you know, know you guys. I, there is the sense of this kind of expansive tribe that yes. I love that the, People who are searching, mm-hmm. that are breaking down boundaries in a in a in a thoughtful way, that are kind of celebrating what it is to be human, and all the joys that are, you know, available to us if we're willing to kind of thoughtfully uh, question <clears throat> yeah. and push at at the at the the unspoken rules. Yeah. Right.
0: Did you? like in this creating this space, did it sort of just happen? Did you, did you buy this place intentionally thinking like, I'm going to create this kind of, cause I feel like you do this with mm. Joshua tree and in Bombay beach too. And I feel like it's something that was very inspiring to me, this idea of like creating a world, you know, yeah. an alternative world and that you can take that. You can do that out of nothing. Like people think we're so limited in our resources or what we can accomplish because we live in America or because we live in this civilized world. And I feel like we have so many opportunities that we don't take to create alternate environments and worlds. And I feel like you do that. And I never knew if you did it intentionally or was that just something that you,
2: it's a good question. Like, I don't know how much I believe in intention Mm. being even possible. I I mean, it's like we have this dialogue with, ourselves and with the world that's always unfolding. I have thought of myself lately as like, because I've, I've identified less and less as a filmmaker. Mm. And so then I think of myself as doing applied philosophy. Um, (laughs) and that manifests sometimes in filmmaking, sometimes in podcasting, sometimes in photography and sometimes in music. And most of all, in this kind of creation of a life and an environment, that is this kind of constantly unfolding and evolving work of art. And that it, and I think that what's happened is as we spend more and more time looking at screens, um, the last thing I want to do is like dedicate my life to looking at screens even more.
1: Yeah.
2: Like I've, I've maxed Mm -hmm. out on that. So now I'm interested in, in the three dimensional experience that, that pushes at the, again, pushes at the boundaries of the four, four edges of a, of a, of a movie screen. Um, and, and Bombay beach and this place have provided that opportunity to have this evolving dialogue with the, with the world and with each other through actual projects like this. And no, I did not intend it at all. Like I didn't even think I was going to live in the desert. I just thought I was going to, have a little piece of land here that I could Mm -hmm. like visit every once in a while and have my trailers here. Um, I do have a kind of trailer fetish that I've had since I was a kid. Like my first car was a little VW bus. And I always just love this idea of a little cozy vehicle that you could take out into the world and adventure. And, and, um, and so I had this kind of, I started collecting them as I was able to, and I had this little accidental illegal trailer park in Venice beach.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> did you ever visit me there? Uh-uh, no. I you
3: then.
2: So I had one Airstream in the front yard and then I started renting that out on Airbnb and that did so well. So I started adding more and more and like four years in, I had like five trailers in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood yeah. around me. <laughs> and every, the neighbors were looking at me more and more.
0: Yeah.
2: Asconce. Is that the word? Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, I came home one day to like 12 pages of code violations. The neighbors had called the authorities. The inspector had come around and given me 30 days and large fines if I did not get rid of these trailers. So that's how I ended up in the desert. I never had a plan to live in the desert. It just came out of necessity and part of me was terrified because my entire living had like just been, you know, swept up from under me. And part of me like secretly was super excited because I was like, this is an opportunity for something new. And I'd become a kind of victim of my own comfort. Um, And I I could feel that kind of stagnation happening. And I was like, I can't leave this because it's too good.
3: Mm.
2: And at the same time, Venice is getting more and more boring it's uh, Venice Beach, California we're talking about. Yeah. it. just become this super like yuppie techie, like yeah. just, th- it had been this edgy place and that just, that edge just went away like so dramatically. Yeah. And, and by edge, I mean, again, we're talking about boundaries a lot, like to live near that boundary on the, that edge. Yeah. There, Venice Beach had that traditionally because it it was literally on the edge of LA and like the, the edge of California and you had this barrier with the water and, and, and there was a, I think artists tend towards those places, not by accident, because you want to be having this conversation with, with the boundaries that right. define us. Right. right. And there's a great example in, uh, in, uh, being in the world, my film, where one of the philosophers talks about the fact that in the eighties, like the, uh, the German soccer team, that 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 had been very dominant in mm-hmm. the World Cup, the Brazilian team figured out that they were had this very subtle fear of the boundaries, and that they could like, because Germans are so boundary defined, yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: that they could manipulate that 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 fear that the Germans had by playing very close <laughs> to the edge, right. and uh, so and they bad. were able to beat the German team. By, uh, by taking advantage of this, of this, uh, this true. vulnerability. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I think, I think artists are attracted to these, these edge cases. It's a lot of what we've been talking about.
1: Yeah.
2: Like, how do we, how do we test those boundaries? And, um, and so the desert for me is that now, like mm-hmm. the desert feels like what, what Venice beach used to feel like 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Right. And it feels like this people exploring new ways of life, uh, new senses of community. And there's an excitement, the palpable kind of feeling of like new, interesting people keep coming here. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And what happened in Venice, like there was, there was that sense for a while. And then afterwards it was like, Oh, you're moving here. And it was like a little kind of strange and, 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 and wrong feeling. And then it was like, Oh wait, you're moving away. Yeah. Yeah. You can't afford it anymore. (laughs) That sucks. Like, and then yeah. the, like five, 10 really interesting people that I knew moved away and five, 10, like, you know, slightly boring people moved in and they're Yeah, And, uh, and unfortunately that, you know, I think a city, like I'm sure this has happened all the time in Soho and different places. Like the city can withstand a lot mm-hmm. of abuse and change without its essence changing. The desert is much more fragile. And I worry that like just a f- couple of the wrong people right. and attitudes and like some people coming to exploit this sense mm. is a real danger. And so how do we, how do we preserve and nurture, uh, this culture in an intentional way is super important. And I think about it a lot. Yeah. Um, how, you know, how do you make it function without exploiting it? Yeah. And that's, what's wonderful about this ability to rent to people. I, I joke that I get people's Baggage, luggage, and not their baggage, because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have this kind of temporary communal feel yeah. with people coming through. But yeah. now it's become more and more of an actual commune because there's more and more people living here. Yeah. And uh, I know that I'm playing with fire a little bit by by doing that, uh, but I'm willing to take these risks because obviously there's, there's no reward where there's no risk. Right.
0: Yeah, I remember I listened. I forget who it was, some guru talking about the only way to have a healthy community, or I think he was talking about a spiritual community was to have that in and out thing going on. Like you cannot have (laughs) no pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) That's what she said. (laughs) Like there has to be movement. Um, but yeah, I love what you said too about applied philosophy, because I, I think that's exactly like I, I say, I feel like, again, maybe this is overly simplistic, but like the world is made up of belief systems and thoughts and then whatever we do with them, and if we can, if more of us can apply our values and our desires into like this tangible world that we live in, um, that we'd be a lot better off. Uh, so that, that, that concept of like, this is what I think, this is what I believe, this is what I want. And I'm not just going to sit in some comfy chair and talk about it at a conference. I'm actually going to create this. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's like the, the possibility to the, to that is super inspiring to me to like exactly what you said, like, what is the edge? <laughs> what is the most avant-garde shit that I can put in the real world? You know, like that inspires me a lot. Um,
2: yeah. And, and this, this dialogue between the idea and the, and the, the instantiation of it is so interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, in, in monogamous, the philosophy professor and my dear friend, Mark Rathall says, uh bring it back to sexuality since it's where, where we started like if if love is just an idea then this ex- entire existence is a waste of time right like we're just like we th- these bodies become just encumbrances right mm-hmm. and that the, the the reality always is a, like a impoverished kind of instantiation of an ideal that doesn't that can never actually Exist. Yeah. On the other hand, equally dangerous, and I think that we have to be careful, us kind of hedonists, um, that if 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 we only eroticize, then life can become just the satisfaction of one urge after another, yeah. which can lead to a, a profound emptiness. Mm-hmm. And so I think this 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 dialogue between the idea. And the concretization of the idea is something that you have to do constantly. It's very easy to sit and just think about what you would do or what you could do. And when you, once you put but get your hands dirty and try, you realize there's all sorts of issues that you never could have right. uh, anticipated. Yeah. And there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty in kind of like engaging in the world in that way. And and an acceptance in the fact that it's obviously not for everybody. And thank God it's not for everybody. Yeah. This goes for the the, the openness, the the, the desert living the, the unlocked doors, the, 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 the the celebration of, you know, creative impulses over practical impulses, let's say, um, I would never try and convince somebody rationally that this is the way to go. But I do think that we're finding each other, the ones who are predisposed to this and helping each other kind of reinforce, uh, a sense of, a culture I guess mm-hmm. of a of a continuity between between, you know, times and yeah. from our parents' generation and like yeah. kind of carrying that torch a little bit. For sure, I've definitely <laughs> found that, like I talked earlier about it being, a, uh, you know, rejecting that when I was a kid by wanting to be super conservative and square and like then realizing later on that, no, I actually do have that in me to, to want to question and question authority and, and, um, and invent a new way of being like, I definitely, I think about life, life itself being a, a a work of art and a narrative that I don't want to like, it would be inauthentic to think about it too much in the third person, but there is a part of me that wants to kind of, uh, live a life. That's a good story. Yeah. Right.
3: Yeah.
2: And that it's okay to sometimes make choices based on that. Yeah. And, 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 and to have a, a life that's a, uh, a, uh, reflection of an imaginative impulse. Yes. Right? Amen. I still... <laughs> okay. I think this is a great, can we do this like, um, on a regular basis? Yes, please. I would like to have like, uh, <laughs> regular chats with, with both you and Chris. I think this yeah. is really valuable. I love, I love, it, it, again, it's, it's the concretization of Good. the idea.
0: Yeah, we should do it. I was just going to say, we should do it three-way once.
2: <laughs> okay. Oh, we could.
0: <laughs> that would
2: be fun. You mean on the podcast? On the podcast. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean. <laughs> Don't push stop over there. Hello again. Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Please go listen to Tao's podcast. Honestly, every episode that I've heard is amazing and highly recommend his films being in the world. Monogamish. Um, we, I wanted to talk to him so much more about (laughs) Monogamish too, and we didn't get to it. So more podcasts with Tao coming up soon. Um, if you have an area, if you have some land or awesome outdoor barbecue spot to recommend for a meetup this summer, which I'm going to be co-hosting with Chris Ryan, please send us an email at 81131podcast at gmail.com. Um, if you would like to participate in the Patreon community and get access to workshops and book clubs and playlists and the Discord server, uh, patreon.com slash Anya is the place to do that. And I am going to play you out today with a song called Relationship Anarchy, because that makes sense. <laughs> um, it's by Mary Wander, and uh, it's a cute little impromptu live number it seems like but I love the lyrics and obviously it relates a lot to this conversation (laughs) hope you all are enjoying your own version of whatever anarchy you decide to participate in (laughs) love you all thank you for your attention and your ongoing support it means very 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 much to me until next time
3: he's a salesman he's a salesman don't know what to do Maybe I should Cross the country, settle down We live. Uh- Kind of, that'll make you mine. Uh, ownership is bullshit. Relationship uh, anarchism. Uh, I know that you'll understand the way uh, no one else will. Every night and shining armor, killing all the fascists. Uh,